You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities, living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempe.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio Day. Amen, amen. Kids, you guys are dismissed to your classrooms. I think Jason and Melinda are leading you guys today in the back. You guys are in good hands. Everybody else, you can take a seat just for a moment. This past weekend, uh, I had two really wonderful experiences. One, uh, my MC, a few of us did the story of God on Friday night and then Saturday morning. Uh, This is probably my 10th time going through it. And as Chris Gonzalez often says, every time there's this imaginative process that happens where you see new insights and new things and people make new comments that make you see the story in new ways. And it never gets dull, it never gets boring. There's always something new that God is trying to do in the midst of that. And then uh, Keaton and, and the kids are, I don't know how she did it, on the airplane to get to California for Kylie, her sister's baby shower this weekend. So they're gone. So I'm living bachelor life. I have a lot of time on my hands. I don't know what to do. So I went and saw a movie by myself on Saturday afternoon. Anybody like those experiences? I was the, literally the only person in the theater with this other middle-aged, middle-aged woman. So I felt kind of uncomfortable. Like, I'm, I'm just here watching a movie. Uh, but it's just the two of us in the theater. She was, she was really nice, though. We, we kind of had, had a moment together. And uh, I went and saw the movie. It's, uh, it's called Come On, Come On. Uh, it's with Joaquin Phoenix. And guys, this is my movie taste. It's slow, dark, sad, real. And it's Joaquin Phoenix. Like, that's my guy. Like, he's always playing weird roles. So this movie is about a uncle, Joaquin Phoenix, who goes around the United States and interviews people and their stories, Uh, interviews kids. And what do you think the future is going to be like? And it's this whole movie around him interviewing kids, but then he takes along his his nephew, this nine-year-old, and they begin to become like best friends. And it's super emotional. It's about like parenting and uh, loss and mental health. It was like so good. And so between the story of God and this movie, these two storytelling experiences, what it does is it cultivates in us often uh, our imaginations. And I think one of the themes of Advent is to cultivate in us an imagination for what God could do in our midst, what he has done, but what he could do. Walter Brueggemann, he wrote this, I think, the goat of Advent devotionals. Uh, You should check it out if you haven't picked it up. Uh, I think it's, what is it called, Chris? Celebrating abundance. Celebrating abundance. He has this quote. Listen to this, and and don't worry, it's going to be a point to this. Listen to this. He says this. Imagine a whole company of believers. This is what he's saying about what, this is the point of Advent. Chris Hamilton gave me this quote, so I'm stealing it from him. So give him the credit because he deserves it. Imagine a whole company of believers rethinking their lives, redeploying their energy, reassessing their purposes. The path is to love God, not party, not ideology, not pet project, but God's will for steadfast love that is not deterred by fear and anxiety. The path is to love neighbor face to face, to love neighbor in community action, to love neighbor in systemic arrangements in imaginative policies. This is the vision of Advent, to reimagine what the world could be like that Jesus has come. And this leads us into the Advent offering this year. And the vision this year of the Advent offering is twofold. One, to bless somebody else within our congregation uh, this Advent season. But then secondly, 
to extend that blessing to someone who is outside of our community, maybe who is far from Christ, who hasn't experienced the liberating freedom and forgiveness that Christ offers us. And so for our passing of the peace today, we're going to do an imagination exercise. I want you to just turn to somebody around you, and for the next just two minutes, three minutes, I want you to imagine with the person next to you, what would it look like to bless somebody who is far from Christ, maybe who's outside of his kindness and goodness, who hasn't seen it, who hasn't experienced it this Advent season? It could be a neighbor, could be a coworker, could be a stranger. Like, who is somebody that God might be imagining for you that you might bless this Advent season as part of our Advent offering? So turn to some people around you for a couple of minutes, and then Nate Hughes is going gonna, is gonna to end our year-long series through the Bible. Ready, set, go. All right, now that Johnny's back, um, we, can, we can get started. <laughs> um, I'm glad that Charlie started us with uh, an imaginative exercise because we are going to continue using our imaginations throughout this sermon. Uh, but before we start there, uh, <clears throat> I want to tell you guys about a dream I had this week, which is funny. I haven't been dreaming much, and knowing I was preaching on Revelation, I was like, man, I would love to have a dream this week because it would really help like my introduction idea that I have. And sure enough, like Tuesday night, I had the craziest dream. I was like, Jesus, thank you. You answer prayers in bizarre ways. And dreams are so weird. I don't know about you guys. Maybe you have kind of some pedantic dreams, but mine are usually so weird. So this dream uh, and dreams usually have some touch points with reality, right? Like either they're like something you thought about during the day or something that's been going on. And sometimes God uses dreams to speak to us. So I have this dream. I walk into the kitchen um, and there's this huge like gopher hole <laughs> in the ground. So many of you know, we've been renovating and we lived without floor. We had concrete, but no like real floor for a long time but there's this like massive gopher hole in the ground. And then as dreams do, it's like a couple hours later and I take Emily to show her the, the gopher hole and there's like more gopher holes and somehow there's like a hole between the foundation and the wall. So we're exposed outside. Again, like you're trying to explain a dream that ha doesn't make any sense, but this is what's happening. So then um, all of a sudden I'm outside with Titus and Drexler and I'm holding on to the edge of our roof and the boys are like kind of down on the ground and there's a storm brewing, but the storm's brewing out in the distance. And I don't think I'm holding the roof on. I think I'm just holding the roof. Okay, again, weird. And the boys are there and out in the distance is Tropicana Field. <laughs> and Tropicana Field is not in Phoenix, it's in Tampa Bay. And there's this massive storm cloud like swirling the exact uh, like circumference of the field. And then all of a sudden, the storm cloud just like drops into the field. And the boys are like, whoa, what the heck? This is crazy. And then all of a sudden, I'm transported to my office building. And I'm with Dave Patty, the president of Josiah Venture, which is the organization we used to work with, who I haven't seen in years. And um, we're, getting, we're getting ready to get on an elevator and the elevator's like doors open and the elevator's like halfway down. So like clearly broken. So Dave's like, I'm gonna take the stairs. I'm like, yeah, good decision. So he walks over to the stairs and right as he starts walking down the stairs, the elevator drops, but also the stairs drop with it. And that's the end of the dream. There were some touch points of reality 
Titus's favorite team is the Tampa Bay Rays. So the Tropicana field reference makes a little bit of sense. Uh, one of the elevators was recently broken in our office. And uh, they, I have, like, legitimately, like, I have trauma from our renovation. <laughs> and, like, I don't want to say that, like, uh, to make light of trauma, but... I got in the attic the other day. Oh, that's going to suck if that happens the whole time. Every time that happens. I got it. Thank you. Um, so I was up in the attic getting Christmas stuff down, and I literally, I smelled the attic smell, and immediately, like, my body started going into, like, trauma-like mode. So, again, I don't mean to make light of it, but it really was a horrible <laughs> Uh, experience. And so this dream is drawing on all of those truths, some really deep, some like with no, like nothing, like had no matter at all. This isn't the perfect example, but this is kind of how Revelation is. There are some imagery, there's some stuff in Revelation that just doesn't make sense. And I'll try to point out a couple of those. And uh we, there's no time. There's no time to unpack Revelation. I am not even going to do justice. I'm going to, we're reading a big section, and then I'm going to pull out some things that I hope uh, speak to our hearts and motivate us during this Advent season. But there is, there's no way to unpack the imagery. Uh, Charlie and I were talking ahead of time. It would be great to do a series on Revelation. More, just, I'd love to sit in it myself and have a better grasp for everything uh, that the Spirit was doing with, with John in that. So John is the author, and you guys, normally the wind blows here uh, left to right because most of the time the, my notes go that way when I preach, but now all of a sudden it's going this way. I put my phone on my notes anticipating that, and now it's blowing the other way. So um, I know I should enter into the 21st century, but as Chris and Charlie pointed out, I'm dressed completely in the 20th century, um, which is where I spent most of my life. Um, okay. I also, wanna, I also want to remind us that we're in Advent season, um, and in this current context, as we await and long for the coming of Jesus, that is what we are going to read about here in this passage, the long-awaited coming of of Jesus and his kingdom on earth. All our longings, <clears throat> what the earth is groaning for, what our hearts yearn for, the way we seek pleasures that don't quite satisfy, the acceptance we work for, the release of the pains of our broken bodies and minds, all of this are culminated in the return of the king. And so let's read this passage together, and then uh, the Spirit, hopefully through me, will do a lot to... Um, oh, wow, that's a lot of stuff. That's great. Thank you, Charlie. Um, the Spirit, uh, through me and through his word, will uh, hopefully motivate us to love Jesus more and uh, fulfill his promises. So we're in Revelation 21. We're going to read all the way through 22 seven. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for the words, these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia. It's about 1,400 miles in length and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement. It was 144 cubits thick. That's about 200 feet. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each made of a single pearl. Okay, there's already been a lot of like crazy stuff, but this is the first one that I always am like, a gate is one, a one pearl gate? Like where do the hinges go on a sphere? Like, okay, again, there's already been a lot of that, but those are one of these images that I'm like, I don't quite see how this one pearl gate works. But the great street of the city was of gold as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the lamp is the lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Again, another imagery that I've always, like, is it one of those, like, massive redwoods where you can drive your car through so the tree, like, 
goes over both sides of the river. I don't know. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and the servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the glory of God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. Again, there is so much imagery and stuff to unpack there that we are not going to dive into. So I want to look at kind of two, two themes. Uh, the first being uh, God's, God's dwelling place. Uh, this, this idea of God dwelling, as Sarah kind of mentioned earlier from John, John 1. Um, this idea, this season, Emmanuel means God with us. In Advent, we celebrate the Emmanuel and look forward to when he'll be here again. And this passage is the promise that one day he will dwell again with us. Verse three says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. This is the same word dwell that's used in John one, the word that we also, uh, that also means tabernacle that God tabernacled with us. His dwelling place is here. And I want to give us a brief history of God with us from the beginning. In the beginning, God was with us in Eden, in this perfect place of his care and protection laid out for us. After sin and Adam and Eve were banished and humanity was removed from that place of protection and care, God met with individuals and were calling a nation to himself, eventually culminating in the nation of Israel after the Exodus with uh, a tabernacle set up, this place where God would meet his people as they sojourned, as they traveled. And then as they settled in the land of Israel, they created a temple, a place where God would be with us. And then Jesus the Emmanuel, the word became flesh, dwelling among us in the flesh. But now, now after Jesus, after his resurrection, he sends his Holy Spirit to dwell in us and we are the temple of God. God in us in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And then this passage here that God will be with us again in the flesh and there will be no temple. We're going to come back to this idea of temple in a little bit, but I want us to look at what are the, what are the results of God's presence dwelling with his people? What are the implications for all of creations? I want to look through three lenses at this. We're going to look at the individual, the communal, and the cosmic. And this is where we're going to get into our imagination again. This is where I want us to spend a little bit of time reflecting, dreaming, what will this coming kingdom look like? What will it mean for us? And then I'm also gonna have a share a little bit with one another. 
the funny thing about dreams is sometimes, and this dream I had wasn't one of these, but sometimes you wake up from dreams and you're like super disappointed, right? Like something in the dream was perfect or better than the way it is now or something that you long for and you wake up and you're like, no, dang it, I kind of wish that was real, but alas, <laughs> it's real life again. And so as we dream this morning, I invite us to enter into that place where we would dream so much of what this coming kingdom is going to look like that as we enter back into reality, we would remember the reality of our broken bodies, our broken relationships in this broken world. But that is the nature of Advent, right? This, this in-between, this tension of the already not yet, the coming king, what's coming we have access to God the Father in Christ through the Holy Spirit, but not yet and not fully. We have this longing of what's to come, but we're shackled by the reality of right now. So let's look at how these chapters describe redemption and restoration through those three lenses. So first, the individual. What does it mean for us as individuals? The beginning of verse 21, there's this beautiful passage where it says there will no longer be any death. There'll be no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Chapter 22, verse 3 says, no longer there will there be any curse. When I think of that no longer there'll be any curse and the tension of the curse, I think of Paul's words in Romans 7 when he says, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Do you guys feel that tension? You so long to do what's good and right, and for some reason you can't. That curse will be no longer. Oh, how I long to be free of that curse. Let's take a couple seconds, just eyes closed or thoughtfully, however you think, and imagine what will your fully redeemed person be like? What is that sin? What is that curse? What is that aspect of your body, the brokenness of your body? Maybe it's physical, maybe it's spiritual. What will be no longer in yourself? There's a communal aspect to this redeemed and restored creation as well. And when we look to verse 20 or chapter 22, it talks about the healing of the nations. This tree that somehow is on both sides of this river, it has leaves. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And I know this is more modern history. Obviously, our world is thousands and thousands of tens of thousands of, of years old. And uh, maybe millions of years old, depending on where you land. It's not for this time. But nations, and the idea of nations, starting in Genesis 11, there have been many nations over these thousands and thousands of years that have been broken and have been hurt. And when I think of like modern 
Africa or South America. And when I say modern, I'm meaning in relative to like 10,000 years of like human history. <laughs> but when I think of Africa, I think of South America, Central America, Native Americans whose resources were stripped from them and their people abused by both outsiders and insiders. I think of the healing of those nations that will happen in this redeemed and restored creation. And the verse after that says, no longer will there be any curse. So even the context of that, I think, has to do more communally than it even does individually. What, as we use our imagination again, what are those aspects of interpersonal conflict, interpersonal relationships, maybe even if you want to think broader than just your interpersonal relationships, but even of like the nations, our, our nation, the curses of our nation, what are those things that are, you are looking forward to being done away with? I know I need an iPad, but I'm not going to do it. Stick with paper until we're inside again. Let's again use our imagination as we think of the cosmic, this cosmic effect of the new, the new heaven and the new earth. That's how it's described at the beginning of this chapter 21, a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away and there was no longer any sea and a new Jerusalem comes down as well. And then he who was seated on the throne in verse five says, I am making everything new. No more curse. The groaning of all of creation, as we talked about a couple weeks ago from Romans eight will be done away. All creation will be restored to the way it was intended to be. Can you imagine? Imagine your favorite place on earth, your favorite place in God's creation. What will that be like? In some ways, probably your favorite place on earth is a place that is somewhat unaffected or has been mostly unaffected by the curse. But can you imagine? There've been some beautiful sunrises recently and I'm like trying to imagine, like, are there new colors that get thrown in there? Like, what, what do we get? Like, what is, what is unsullied creation? There's also horrible, like, there's also beautiful sunrise, sunsets that come from pollution. So I have to believe that like the sunsets will be like no polluted, like just real good, beautiful sunsets. But okay, turn to some people around you, these kind of creative times, your, your imaginative times. I want you to share with one another. We're gonna take a, a few minutes here to just share like what, how do you imagine this coming kingdom individually, communally, and then cosmic, cosmically? Go. But make it personal, okay? So whatever you were thinking about, I want you to share that. Like don't be afraid to say, I hate when I yell at my kids and I'm impatient with them. Like make it personal. That's mine. Maybe you just centered on one of those areas and probably didn't have enough time to share everyone's thoughts over the three different uh, aspects of the redeemed and restored creation. But 
Now I want to look at what are the implications for us? What does this mean uh, for, for today? How does this future coming of Christ affect us now? And I want us to, to look back at that temple, tabernacle kind of storyline that I, I referenced earlier, this, this history of God with us. Um, the movement from Eden to the tabernacle, to the temple, to Jesus, to us, the church. This is God's history-long effort to make his presence known to his people, an ongoing effort to show all of creation who he is. And really until this week, as I was pondering the implications of that, I'd never really considered the weight and the responsibility of being the temple of God as a person, as a church. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the living God? 2 Corinthians 6.16, For we are the temple of the living God. The implications of this are enormous. The, the Eden, the garden was where God met man. He walked with him. He provided his care and protection for him. The temple, the tabernacle is where God met man again. And then through Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, God walked with man. But now as we wait for the coming of Jesus again and this coming kingdom, we are the temple of God. We are the ones where humanity meets God. Or maybe more specifically, where God meets humanity. As I reflected on that this week, it, it was almost too much to, to bear. Uh, and it caused me to, to exclaim, Lord, come quickly. But what if we look at it from a different angle? Because the garden was really just a space where God came and met Adam and Eve. The tabernacle didn't do anything. It was a tent that was rolled up and carried away until it was erected again and became a space where God met his people again. And the temple, brick and mortar, built, erected with a space in the center where God met with his people. Until Jesus, these were just spaces. And then Jesus came, word made flesh, and dwelt and tabernacled among us. Now all of a sudden this place becomes a moving, living human who walked with people and engaged with them and met them. The word became flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. And after Jesus, everything changed. God's people were given the Holy Spirit. God's very presence in us, in his people, once hyper-localized to Israel, to one nation, scattered to Tempe, to uh, Phoenix, to South Scottsdale, to Guatemala, to Burma, to Mozambique. God's presence, his temple, in the ends of the earth. And that's us as our missional communities dotted throughout the valley, 
both as Missio Tempe, but Mesa and Phoenix as well, and, and all the other churches in the valley, these spaces where God dwells. Chris Wright says, God's mission is what fills the gap between the scattering of the nations in Genesis 11 and the healing of the nations in Revelation 22. And that pressure I feel to be God's temple, the place where he dwells, that goes away when I think of the fact that the tabernacle, the garden, the temple were just vessels for where God dwelt. And that we too are vessels of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to do anything. We get to just be his people, led by the Holy Spirit, God with us bringing this kingdom to earth. Gregory Beale writes, our task as a church is to be God's temple. So filled with his presence that we expand and fill the earth with that glorious presence until God finally accomplishes this goal completely at the end of time. And maybe I haven't said this explicitly, so I want to make sure this is explicit. Yes, we as individuals are God's temple, but more than that, communally, we are his temple. So we don't do it alone. Nate doesn't have to feel that pressure. We as his body are the temple of God where he dwells. And as we live life together on mission, centered around the good news of Jesus Christ and the second advent, this coming of Jesus that's coming. We are God with us. We are Emmanuel. We are where humanity can meet God. I've been reading this beautiful collection of writings and sermons on advent by Fleming Rutledge. And these final verses in Revelation 22, the full culmination of our, the written word of God, the Bible, says in verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. She says, the church's life is lived in the tension between the amen and the come, between the already and the not yet, between the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus has already come. He will come again. And we remember that coming every Sunday as we gather together through the taking of the elements, the symbol of God's body and blood given for us that we might have hope of this coming kingdom. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, Jesus took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many 
for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Every week we proclaim together the mystery of the faith that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And so let's do that corporately. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.